Hi, it's Michael Shapiro, and welcome back to the Delacorte Review podcast, where in each episode, we talk with writers about the stories they needed to tell and all the things that went wrong on the way to telling them. Uh, Today, a reversal of roles. I'll be talking with our senior editor, Sissy Falcon, about a story that I've written. Um, One that I should explain is 35 years in the making. It's a story about a friendship and a death and a country. The country is Israel. And it was not easy to tell. So, Sissy, um, this story, um, first of all, thank you for helping me with it. But I guess I never really talked with you about what led up to my doing it, did I? Right. Well, it was a privilege to to get to edit it. It's a wonderful piece. But one of the first questions that came to my mind was, uh, you and I have discussed in reference to other stories how difficult it is to write well about loss. And I admire how you told the facts without sentimentality, but the way you ordered the material and the understated way you wrote makes us as readers feel your loss deeply. How did you figure out your approach? Well, it's an interesting question. I should go back a bit and explain what the story is about. So in 1984, shortly before my wife and I got married and shortly before we moved to Japan, I got a call from the brother of my best friend saying that he was very, very ill. He was living in Israel at the time, had been the founder of a, of a kibbutz in the, in the desert, in the Negev desert. Um, and my wife said, go. Now, I should explain that I had seen him. We had seen him together, in fact, about six months before that. And he was in the peak of health, um, just in loving the life that he had created for himself. He was married. He and his wife had a a daughter, about a year old. And now when I saw him again, it was horribly transformed. He was, he had, um, I guess, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which at the time was a very, very difficult illness to cure. He was skeletal. His hair was falling out. And he was paralyzed from the waist down. Not unrecognizable. I certainly still recognized him. So I stayed in Israel for about five days, and then I left and returned to the United States. He was still alive when I left. And I returned to the United States. A couple of weeks later, we moved to Japan. And I kept on calling the apartment where the family was staying. And finally, one night after two weeks of trying, his brother picked up and I said, how is Johnny? My friend's name was Jonathan Maximon. How is Johnny? He said, he died two weeks ago. And as I write in the piece, my wife could not tell by the expression on my face what had happened. So I kept on trying to find a way to write about him and write about this loss. I should explain that we were best friends from the time we were 11 years old. And I thought for a long time that the reason our friendship continued for the next 20 years until his death, and I'm, I'd like to believe would have continued on to now, and I'm 66, and he, he would have been the same age was because at a time when it was really important to know who your best friend was, he was my best friend and I was his best friend. And this was through adolescence, through high school, through college, and into adulthood. And the struggle was I couldn't find a way to write about him. But to your question, when I finally did, it was actually in ways that are sort of hard to explain and be interesting to explore, eat far easier than I thought it would be. But you 
again, Sissy, I'm, I'm, you're, I'm asking you a question. Um, there were things in the story that are very, very deeply personally felt, but I, but you were making the point that I kept something of an emotional. Is it distance? What, what, what do you, how did you see it when you read it? Well, I just think it's so easy for people to fall into uh, sentimentality, and and you never did. You just presented the information to us and let us feel it. I just think it's such a rare way to do it. Well, you know, I'm in many ways, I'm really glad I did not write this story 30 years ago um, or even 20 years ago because I think it was the kind of story, when I look back at myself as a writer, that you really needed to have have written a lot of stories and made a lot of mistakes. And also it was somebody who teaches people how to do this and edits them to recognize the kinds of things that you know don't succeed. I mean, when you're young, there is the temptation to always feel the need to supply emotion. That, And I think many ways... I think that's a reflection of for a lot of young writers and not even brand new writers, but younger writers that there's you don't trust your reporting. I you know what's if you think of fiction at its best as being propelled by imagination, then what we do in nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, true stories, is work that is propelled by reporting. But because people's writing skills have been developed for twenty years before they even saw working professionally, those writing skills far eclipse their reporting skills. They're out of balance with each other. And I remember, in fact, that aforementioned friend from Chicago who gave you the dandelions that day, one day he, we were out doing something, and he goes, we were all on a last-name basis, and he goes, Shapiro, he says, the day that your reporting catches up with your writing, you're going to be okay, which I took as a great compliment, but it's also true. So I think what happened this time is that when I went, what the, the nature of the trip is such that my daughter mentioned that she might be going to Israel. And I said, okay, fine, there's my pretext. You mind if we overlap by day? No, that's fine. Her plans changed. I had my ticket, so I was going. And once it, I had the ticket, I couldn't find an excuse not to go anymore. I wasn't afraid to go. I wanted to go. And the ostensible reason for this trip was to visit his grave. He's buried at the kibbutz that he helped found. The kibbutz is really in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing around but desert and desert mountains. It is brown and rust and dry and hot. And there's a small cemetery at this kibbutz where he is buried, in fact, next to his parents. Um, and I had put this thing off for really, obviously for 35 years. I didn't know that I was going to write, and I think that was probably an advantage. But I took a notebook and I took my laptop. My laptop I just used to book, rebook a flight. <laughs> that stayed tucked away, but I had the notebook. But I had something else, as you, you and I have talked about, Sissy, which is I had discovered about four years ago, four or five years ago, that I had saved his letters. Um, pack rat that I am. I saved all these letters. And I found one bunch of letters and when I began to read them, letters that he had written to me late in his life, and it was hearing his voice for the first time in 30 years, and it hit me like a two-by-four in the head. I mean, it was, it was staggering. And I knew that if I saved those letters, I surely would have, must have saved others, and I found others. But the experience of reading the second bunch of letters, which were primarily written when he was 
he he went to, when Johnny went to Israel for the first time in 1970. He graduated from high school early. We grew up in I should explain we grew up in Midwood, a section of Brooklyn, which were, and we went to parochial school. So we were deeply imbued with a sense of Israel as center of, central in our life, and Johnny's family is especially so. He spoke Hebrew before I even began to learn it. And everybody in his family spoke Hebrew, he had a much deeper connection that, than I did, and my connection was very deep. Um, I began to read those early letters in 1970, and then the letters he wrote to me when he went to college at Northwestern. And the experience of reading those letters was very different, and I couldn't figure out why. That they were, they were perfectly fine, but it lacked for me the emotional punch of them. So I remember one year I was sitting in synagogue on Yom Kippur, and a friend of mine who's a journalist, uh, an editor, goes, what are you reading? He's sitting, we always sit together, and he goes, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading these letters that my friend wrote to me, and I'm trying to find if there's a story there. He goes, maybe, essentially what it says, if you have to look too hard, maybe there isn't. And I kind of didn't want to believe that, but I thought maybe it was true. So I go back to, so I'm finally going to Israel, and I've been, not been to Israel. I had been there five times before. I had not been to Israel in 35 years. So my first night there, I go to a restaurant in Tel Aviv, and I, Tel Aviv at this point is unrecognizable to me because the last time I was there, it was sort of a, forgive me, for those of you who love Tel Aviv, you weren't there 50 years ago, it was kind of a crummy place where there's all Bauhaus architecture. It wasn't cool then. It was a shabby. Anyway, I'm sitting in this really great restaurant, and again, back then, the food was terrible. I'm sorry. I know people are going to listen to this and go, how could you say that? Why can I say it? Because it's true. Anyway, the food got great. I'm sitting in this restaurant, and I put on my reading glasses, and I begin to read his letters, and now all of a sudden, the letters are making sense to me because I'm seeing Israel through his eyes, and I'm seeing it through the eyes of a 16-year-old writing to another 16-year-old. This is not letters of a 30-year-old writing to another 30-year-old. We were essentially two adults, young adults writing to each other. These are two teenagers. And for those of you who remember being a teenager, you're not necessarily, especially teenage boys, forgive me, this is going to sound terrible, we are not brimming with deep insight and thought. Mostly <laughs> what they're about is girls. And uh-huh. and it's like, and mostly what it's about is rejection and fear and I don't know and gee, you think you like me kind of thing. And so the letters are of a piece and of a time, but what they also capture what it was like for him to be in Israel then. And being there and reading the letters, he came alive for me. And then I just started taking notes on what I was seeing and what I was reading. I just filled a notebook. Did you know, you could have written about him without going back to Israel. Why Why did you go back to Israel? Because it becomes such an important component of the story. Well, it's really everything. I, I, it's a, a really good question. Um, I, I didn't feel a great need, I will tell you, and this is going to no doubt upset some people by my, my views, but I have to explain that I grew up in a very religious Jewish world, ex- almost ex- so exclusively Jewish that there was one family on our block in Brooklyn that had Christmas decorations. One. Everybody else was Jewish. I went to Jewish parochial school as a Johnny where we met when, in fact, I was going to an Orthodox yeshiva, and at the end of sixth grade, my, my parents pulled, my, pulled the three of us out of that school because my brother, who I will say parenthetically, has gone on to become America's leading Shakespearean. 
my brother and I were both on a, on a glide path to what was known by everybody as the dumb class. And so we were pulled out of that school. They put us in a, a conservative, lowercase c, conservative, or actually uppercase a uh, day school, which was less religiously stringent. And that's where I met Johnny. And so Israel was central in our lives, but in a way that was, we have to remember, this is the, this is the mid-1960s. This is pre-six-day war. This is Israel's a light among nations. Who are we to ever criticize them? They give with blood. We give with money. I mean, I, I grew up with these cliches. And for Johnny especially, Israel was so core to his existence. In fact, as I write in the piece, because I saw in the letters, what he's writing to me, and at first I don't see them until I'm in Israel and I become so clear, not only does he love being in Israel, but he wants to convince his parents to let him join the Israeli army. He wants this place. And the clarity of his vision about it is staggering because at that time at 16, I didn't even know what I wanted for lunch. what I wanted to do with my life. But what I had felt, and I think you and I had talked about this, was that had had Johnny moved to Israel and become a teacher or work in any kind of of adaptation of an American life set in Israel, in Tel Aviv, Haifa, or even Jerusalem, that would have been one thing. But it was the nature of the life that he built for himself in Israel. I want to make clear in the choice of words that I'm going to use now. Johnny wanted to be a pioneer, not a settler. He did not want to live in the West Bank. He did not want to be part of the occupation. Yes, he wanted to be part of the Israeli army because he felt very strongly that to be a Jew in Israel meant to be part of the army. But he, he had no use for the hard right politics. In fact, one day when I was visiting, when he was sick, a relative was visiting, and Johnny was going in for yet another test. And there was a line, and there was an Arab man in front of him. And this relative goes, an Arab before a Jew? To which Johnny snaps, it's his country too. So I just want to make that clear about where he stood politically. But he wanted to build something. He, and what he did is that he was part of a group that are called in Hebrew, a garin, a seed, that helped found this kibbutz named Yahel, which is all the way in the, the southern part of the country. And the creation of it, the building of it, the being there in the beginning really hearkened to, in many romantic ways, the early days of, of Jews returning to Israel and making the desert bloom sort of thing, and quite literally, in his case, helping make the desert bloom. And he does this, and he builds this, and then he dies. Out of nowhere, he dies. And years later, people say, oh, maybe you think he, was, he got sick from this or got sick from pesticides. And I talked to a friend of mine who's a physician. And he said, stop right there. He died. He got cancer and he died. And it's tragic. And I think in many ways we sort of look for answers of why did somebody die? Tragically, he was 31 years old. He had an illness that is now treatable and in many cases curable. But in 1984, was not. And one of the difficult things in a story like this one, going back to your, your early question, is it's not only your best friend, but the fact that in many ways what you have to come to terms with is more than a lot, you have now more than doubled your lifetime together. He was 31 when you died. This is 35 years ago. His wife, who I met, I went, when I went down to, to the kibbutz to visit his grave, met me at the airport, and she remarried. She, had, she and her husband, who's this wonderful guy, have four kids who are adult kids. His daughter is now 37. Unfortunately, she has a, 
her husband has not been well, so she was not there. So I never got a chance to see her and meet her. But I met her children, his grand grandchildren. And I walked into their house on this kibbutz, and there's a wall of photographs. And there in the middle is a photograph of him with his daughter. And it's all, you could see that it was already when he was sick because he's, his shoulders are bony. He's not, he's not the you know, muscular guy that he was certainly the last time that I saw him before I saw him in the hospital. But um, you asked me about how you keep your emotions out of this. And I think what happens is that you, re- is that you become, at a certain point in your career as a writer, comfortable with just knowing I have the reporting. I know the story. And in many ways, the aspiration to sort of feel that you know it, to write with that authoritative ease, is easy in, easy in the imagining and difficult in the execution. And I think what a lot of young writers do, and I can certainly remember, Sissy, when I wrote for you back in the late 1970s, how I tried so often too hard, and I overdid it, and I relied on my language because I simply didn't have the goods. But getting the goods and having the story and knowing and believing in it, that's like maybe the hardest thing there is. But when you have it, it's just like the writing is easy. Er, <laughs> easier. <laughs> I mean, let me qualify that. Was there a key moment when you were writing it that you realized you had the format? You, you know, you, 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 you really had this because it's so complex. Well. Honestly, and I, I'm saying this, I'm sort of looking down at a printout of it now. Um, I think, and, and I say this because I think it's useful, and I'm actually working on a couple of stories with, um, to, with writers who are, young, who are less experienced because they're not 66. Um, and, and I think that I knew when I wrote that first sentence exactly where I was going to go. Um, and, and, and the reason I did it's, this is no great genius on my part, believe you me. What it was really about, and I think this was hard, and I can certainly remember the experience for years before I was going to do this, is I committed. I'm not talking about a leap of faith, like I'm going to close my eyes and jump and just hope this works out okay. You know, I, and it was interesting. Okay, the first line, I told people that. When I first wrote it, I go, I began with the word when. When I told people that, and that kind of, undermined it, kind of undercut it, and made it a little mushy. I needed to make a statement, and I needed to commit to it. I told people that, as opposed to when, you see, the inflection is different. And I think that once I did that, I had committed to a direction. And once I committed to a direction, what's exciting, and I'm saying this as somebody, you know, who's written a lot, but, and I will say, I, I should here confess that I had done a lot of, I have written a lot of stories and I've written books and long stories, but this is the first long story I've written in probably six years. I know that like, that's almost sacrilegious to say that. I'd written some short stuff, a bunch of short stuff, but I hadn't written anything this long. The story is, I should say to readers by way of like a buyer beware, it's 16,000 words long. Um, It's just a long story. And I didn't, and I was conscious of the length, but also conscious that there were things that I needed to say. And I didn't, I was not going to be happy cutting it because I needed to say it all. That, yeah, that I, it's so interesting what happens. People think that the creative art, the creative act of writing, I don't say art, but 
personally, I don't want to be flattering for what we all do, but the act of writing, the creativity, happens in the words that we choose and the sentences we write, which is actually not true. And in fact, there's um, a, a genre of writing that's called writing for lines, in which you're writing clever line after clever line after clever line. And that's generally the case when you, you have, a, as I think Faulkner once said, the man can write, but he don't have nothing to say when you don't have nothing to say. <laughs> and I think that um, what happened here was something with the creativity, that's the creativity, let me go back a step. The creativity is actually in the choices that we make. When you're writing, and for those who write or are interested in writing, there's a process in which you're writing something and you hit a wall. And, and the temptation is, certainly from journalist training, to try to just, Run, step back and run into that wall as many times as it takes to knock the wall over, except the wall never gets knocked over. That maybe that wall is there for a reason. Maybe that you run into you know, a, a wall, metaphorically speaking, that's in the thought process or intellectually, or you're really not sure how to get past this. So maybe you have to go back to the beginning and think your way around it. All of which is to say that the creative process of writing is in decisions that you make that will keep on propelling somebody through the story. Look, I say this to students all the time, and I really mean it. If people stop reading your story, it's always your fault. It's really imperative that you're going, how do I keep them listening? How do I? You can't be so arrogant to say, my story is so interesting. So the decisions that we make about as we're going through this journey of pulling the story together, that's where the interesting things happen. It's like, wait a second. There's a letter here, and it relates back to this thing. And like, no, I'm seeing the story wrong. And so what happens, I think, without necessarily being conscious of it as readers, is that we get caught in that writer's sense of discovery. We're on the journey with the writer. And we sense how badly, how urgently that writer needs to tell that story as opposed to, you know, there's an expression, it's a sort of dated, and certainly you and I will appreciate this as old hands in this line of work, that the story does not lift off the page. What's going to make people excited is that they get caught up in where you're taking them. Yeah. That they want, it's like, I mean, I have this joke with my students. I go, I have a story I'm, I'm interested in doing. Oh, maybe you're interested in reading it. It's this guy, and his, his father dies, and his mother marries his uncle, and his mother, may, the uncle may have had something to do with the father's death. thing. is this girlfriend who's crazy and whose father talks too much. Do you want to read that? And they go, no. I go, Hamlet. <laughs> Hamlet. <laughs> Hamlet. <laughs> That's right. So... People think that, oh, nobody's going to care about my story. That's always said by somebody who thinks that people really should. I get that. But no one's going to, nobody's going to care about my story. People will read anything as long as they feel the, the urgency on the writer's part to tell them. And that urgency, I would argue, gets created when a writer is on a journey to sort something out. And I, my hope is that when people read the story they'll feel, oh, I get it, and they'll connect to it in a way that makes them, even though they may have whatever views they have about Israel, or they may have or no views about Israel at all, that they didn't lose their best friend when he was 31, that whatever friend they had at 11 stopped being their friend when they were 15, that can nonetheless connect to what I needed to find out because that's what we do.
Thanks for listening. This has been the Delacorte Review Podcast. Our producer is Katie Ferguson. Our editor is Mike Hoyt, senior editor Sissy Falligant, associate editor Natasha Rodriguez. And we'd be hopeless and helpless without our two wonderful interns, Andrew Wang and Maddie Natelli. Thanks a lot.